Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with an extraordinary man who I've been learning a great deal from over the last couple of three years. His name is Stephen Herrmann. He is a Jungian psychologist who was trained at the C.G. Jung Institute in San Francisco, and he now is uh, welcome back to be a teacher and trainer of Jung analysts himself. Uh, he became very interesting to me, and as many in the audience know, I had a sailboat called Shaman, and somebody once gave me a book called Shaman's Call, and he happened to be the author of that book. He has worked very much with a man we'll talk a lot about today uh, and written books about him. The Shaman's Call was about a man named William Everson, who is an extraordinary poet, was involved with the Catholic Church, taught at University of California, Santa Cruz, where, hello and behold, our guest today was his teaching assistant. And with an eye towards our Young Scholars Initiative, what Everson taught me in reading his book, Birth of a Poet, and I've learned more from Stephen, is about choice of vocation. And I see young economists coming in with all kinds of tools to learn and pressures to how to get tenure or how to build prestige, what constitutes a satisfying as opposed to a conforming career trajectory and all kinds of dilemmas that I know my young scholars work with. So I welcome Stephen and thank you for, for joining us. Uh, I'm sure you will shed light on many of the, how do I say, ways of approaching career development and particularly uh, with the insights that you've culled together in your own research and learned from William Everson. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here uh, speaking with uh, you and with uh, the young scholars and uh, people who will be listening to this podcast. I um, am honored to be able to uh, tell you a little bit about my uh, background working with uh, the poet uh, in residence at UC Santa Cruz when I was a student. I was a young scholar myself then. Uh, this happened in uh, 1980 when uh, William Everson selected me to be his teaching assistant. And this was for a course that he called Birth of a Poet, which originally uh, had a literary focus in the literature department, but then it broadened and opened itself up to uh, students from all different areas of uh, specialization at the university. And eventually there were uh, people coming from uh, many of the uh, different uh, schools, the campuses uh, at Santa Cruz. And um, the aim of the course was to see if you could confirm your vocation, your calling, uh, the calling from the inner voice, the 
die Stimme des Inners, uh, the inner voice, as uh, uh, Carl Jung uh, called it uh, in an essay by that title, uh, the de in the development of the personality. Originally, it was called uh, the the inner voice. Uh, Everson had been at the uh, Dominican uh, monastery in Oakland here at uh, St. Albert's. Uh, uh, he'd worked uh, as a lay monk uh, and a Catholic uh, a beat poet and a printer. And then um, he left the order after 18 years as a, as a monk and uh, then joined the faculty at UC Santa Cruz in the early 70s and uh, by the time I knew him, a decade had elapsed, and this course had evolved to the point where it had opened itself up, expanded to any uh, vocation, any charismatic vocation. Um, and the aim was to see if you could locate uh, in your uh, recording of dreams throughout the course of a quarter, uh, dreams with vocational significance. In other words, dreams that activated a certain um, uh, potential uh, that's latent in the human psyche uh, and that's based on an instinct, a, a basic human drive for action or a potential to, uh, to have a certain uh, career uh, in the world. So the, the let, aim me, was let me just a, interrupt for a yeah. second. Uh, my understanding that the Jungian perspective is, to put it kind of simply, all of the things that affect your vocation are not self-evident and all right there on the kitchen table. So because of fear, because of blockages, sometimes it is through dreams that these things knock on your door, give you the wake-up call, urge you to make them conscious and move forward. So there's a, there's a process here that's a little bit indirect. Definitely. The, the, the conscious mind thinks it's running the show, but really the, the unconscious plays a much larger role in the patterning of human destiny than one uh, at first uh, believes uh, due to education, and I think improper education, because uh, we don't, we're not trained uh, or educated to look to our dreams for vocational guidance, but that's the way I was uh, taught by Everson as a young man of 24. Um, and then uh, teaching Jung's theories of dream interpretation to the uh, students. Typically there was a hundred students in each class, and as you were saying, Rob, the unconscious is a lot wiser than uh, the, the ego, and knows more about the source of our motivation, the source of our uh, psychic energy, where our drive to uh, being is, uh, existence in the world, to be a certain somebody, uh, to, the, to, to, to find meaning in life and purpose. Well, that comes out of a uh, foundation that's instinctual, and like uh, patterns of animal behavior, where uh, animals are... Uh, uh, know where to migrate, they know uh, which uh, course to take. A salmon, for example, knows which uh, stream bed to spawn up. Uh, it returns to the same, uh, to the same water course, uh, the same river. So too in, in the human psyche are there an instinctual patterns of behavior uh, that are, uh, as I said, uh, instinctual 
and uh, biological in their substrate, in their material substrate, in the body. And these archetypes, as Jung called them, these are portraits of instinct. They form themselves into vocational representations. And this is what Everson called a vocational archetype. So the aim was to see if you could find your archetype. And of course, there's more than one archetype. You could be a musician and an economist uh, and a father and many other uh, callings to uh, marriage or parenthood. Uh, these two are uh, profound uh, vocations or to a religious life. But ultimately, the thing that we do in our profession, such as you know, my practice as a Jungian analyst, that becomes primary. That becomes the nuclear orienting uh, symbol, as I uh, found in my research at John F. Kennedy University, where I studied vocational dreams in early adulthood after my uh, time with Everson at Santa Cruz. Um, but we're going to be talking about William Everson today, and uh, I'm just... Uh, really amazed by the synchronicity, another Jungian term that Everson and I talked about uh, quite extensively, um, that in sending me today, Rob, that uh, printout of the Tongs of Jeopardy on the uh, Everson's meditation in 1964 on the assassination of John F. Kennedy uh, Jr., which I had never read before, it helped me understand better not only the destiny of the nation that he talks about and the problems inherent in the nation and the national unconscious, but also my own personal destiny and how uh, after my work with Everson, I went to John F. Kennedy University. So I thank you for sending that today. It's uh, still, uh, it stirred my soul and uh, I'm still reverberating from, uh, from reading it this, this afternoon. Mm. Well, because I work in social science and I'm trying to unlock with some avoidance and allow people to explore their vocation in a time when many people are challenging that orthodox economics has not been, which you might call it, like if you were a sailor, you'd say, well, when the ship runs aground, you know the charts aren't any good. And we've had enough failures now that people are having to re-examine things in light of globalization, new technology platforms, financial instability, and what have you. And just like your salmon, the salmon knows how to pick a path and avoid the grizzly bear because they get eaten if they go too close to the grizzly bear. And here there are grizzly bears, some of which have to be overcome. And I think that that poem is about that interface between politics, social science, and the awareness that Iverson cultivated. And he's an example of the kind of exploration I think social scientists now have to do to become deeper wiser and more helpful in the realm of social science and regaining the credibility of what expertise is meant to mean for the public good. And you uh, have given me so much good nourishment and reading and tours through Everson. The, and I just happened to read an essay by the woman Maria Popova, her uh, 
used to be called brain pickings. Now it's marginaliz marginalarium, I think it's the name of her thing, about John Kennedy and his reverence for Robert Frost and how when Robert Frost died, he made a speech which talked about how Robert Frost was this courageous, the road less traveled kind of poet and that we need that kind of resistance and criticism in order to navigate properly as a society. And I had just finished reading that by Kennedy when you and I got together and then I learned of this poem and was able to dig it out of some archives. But, uh, but to see how he dealt with Kennedy's assassination. I've just finished reading Leonard Bernstein talking about Kennedy's assassination and some of the speeches he gave in the days following, how impactful it is on a person like Bob Dylan, Murder Most Fall, that long 17-minute song on his most recent album, Rough and Rowdy Ways. Here's a man in his 80s writing back this long, long, intense song that was driven by the Kennedy assassination. So whether that, it, we're not talking about at some level a person being the hero, Kennedy's murder, in light of all of the uplifting things that he was doing, don't ask what the country can do for you, ask what you can do for the country. All of the ways in which he was evolving towards a spiritual president is kind of what I think people are yearning for today. And to see it abruptly ended and see how we dealt with the conflict, I think is good fuel for the curiosities that we all need to employ and we need help from people like you to bring us to the place where we make a difference and people sense that we're not marketing bag men for power, we're expertise for the common good. And then they can trust and rely on their representatives and the fear of resort to totalitarian totalitarian and violent governance diminishes. So we got a lot of work to do here, pal. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but you're, I think you, you're right in the middle of it. I, I just want to add one other thing. There's a gentleman named Michael Sandler. He has a thing called automatic writing experience. And in the teachings that he does, it's about how to wake up in the middle of the night and put into a journal what your dreams are telling you, how to excavate through journaling, bringing more of your unconscious on stream, recognizing your own dilemmas, learning about your fears. And I think uh, his, what he calls awe, automatic writing experience, I think is a nice complement with an E to the kind of work that uh, you or Everson have done and take us on. I remember Everson, I'll, just be, I'll turn it back to you here in just a second. But I remember when I read the preface to Bertho Poet, he talked about his teaching was in the form of meditation. And he said, at church you have a sermon, most classrooms you have a lecture. Those are like vertical hierarchies, whereas a meditation is an interaction where the student is being asked to bring things out of themselves to the table. And there, which are my call psychic mus muscular power is increased through that form of teaching as distinct from the passive sitting down low and listening to on high and knowing you got to 
remember it because you got to pass the test to get your grade. And I really thought there was something very refreshing about the way in which Everson imparted learning. But you were there, I wasn't. Is that a, am I fantasizing or was that not uh, at all? Part, uh, part you're of? you're right on, um, right on the mark. Um, this is this is one of the most um, challenging things about dream work is the discipline that is required to get into a habit. Uh, William James, uh, our, our great American philosopher and the first uh, real American psychologist, wrote so much about not only uh, automatic writing, which you mentioned, Rob, but also about um, uh, discipline uh, required uh, with uh, good habits. And um, when I was at Santa Cruz, I learned that. Uh, I was already recording dreams at UC Santa Cruz, and even before I met Everson, I was keeping a dream journal, But because I had found Jung at the age of 20. Uh, but being in the course provided a structure, um, and then going to John F. Kennedy, where I did my research, um, John F. Kennedy University in Orinda, was in Orinda, California then, um, I got into a habit where I could wake up uh, with the alarm clock every um, three hours into uh, sleep or, or 90 minute uh, REM cycle, sometimes four and a half hours into sleep, I'd set my alarm clock and wake up and I would be able to record a dream. And sometimes I'd catch two or three waves of these uh, dreams and write them in the journal. And it's amazing how much uh, the dream content can tell us about our daily uh, activities and what's coming ahead because dreams have a perspective significance. They point to the future. There's a, a teleological dimension to dreams. So oftentimes the future is forecast in dreams. And um, that's why it's so good to get them uh, written down so that you can read them before you go to bed at night. And just that uh, process uh, reinforces the dream recall. If you uh, spend time uh, reading your dreams before sleep and then uh, telling yourself that you're going to remember your dream in the morning as a kind of a dream incubation technique. Getting back to the uh, vocation of the sailor, the calling of uh, being a sailor, uh, you spoke about the fears of the unconscious, Rob, and that is one of the things that I think a lot of people uh, uh, experience. We all do to some degree because the first figure that we encounter in relationship to the unconscious, according to Jung, is the shadow. And we don't typically want to look at what our negative uh, characteristics are, our uh, tendencies uh, that maybe are upsetting to people and the qualities of character that uh, w that uh, have been reinforced and are difficult to change because of the ego. And so the dreams, what they do is they relativize the ego. They, they soften that, um, that outer shell, so to speak, so that what can emerge through it are these, uh, these symbols. Uh, God speaks through symbols, uh, Everson said in that uh, Tongues of Jeopardy uh, article. And that's true. Jung knew that, and 
so did the ancient Hebrews who wrote the Old Testament and then the, the New Testament uh, writers, um, but also the, the theologians who were writing in the medieval period who Everson read. St. Thomas Aquinas uh, was a great teacher of Everson. So was St. Augustine. But later, in 1956, Everson um, met uh, the Dominican theologian Victor White, who was uh, at St. Albert's. And it was through Victor White that Everson uh, got turned on to Jung and then started reading Jung. And when he read Jung, he read Psychological Types, uh, Volume 6 of the Collected Works. There's this essay by Jung on Meister Eckhart. So Everson began to read Eckhart in the order, and he learned from Eckhart how to use silence as a kind of trance-like technique on platform when he read poetry, so that he would bring his audience through uh, repose, as Eckhart called it, the repose, the quiet, the, the silence of the, in the soul. If you could find that still point, then you could create in the audience a kind of a, a suspension of the rational functions of consciousness, uh, typically your thinking and feeling functions, uh, that tend to run the show sometimes, the rational mind, uh, to activate the irrational functions. And Everson was an intuitive type. He was a, an irrational type and an introvert. But on platform, he was an extrovert. He really uh, used the platform as a way to bring out his inferior function. And he did this in a way that really spellbound the audience. And when he taught Birth of a Poet, he brought that same technique into the classroom. So the, it, it was enforced that nobody could talk during the, the meditations, and these lasted for an hour and a half uh, every Tuesday and Thursday. And uh, the students were instructed that they were not to, to speak. So there's a hundred students on uh, gym mats uh, in a circle, seated in a circle with our shoes off, typically, and uh, bare feet. You know, this is UC Santa Cruz. This is very you know, much in the 70s now, 1979 when I f took the course, and then 1980-81 when I was a teaching assistant. And then Everson would be in the center, and he would just walk around in a circle sometimes. And he wore the traditional regalia of uh, uh, a West Coast poet shaman, as he, he called himself. He wore a bear claw necklace and a buckskin vest, had little bells on his feet, and you'd hear him. It sounded like a kind of a, like you were at a Sundance or like you were in a, at a pueblo listening to Native Americans. You know, he he brought the the spirit of of the indigenous peoples into the classroom, so that there was no dividing line between uh, the the nature of the psyche and the nature in the classroom. He brought nature into the classroom, and so getting back to what you said about the fear of the unconscious. Uh, he meditated on the book by Joseph Campbell, uh, each of the chapters, uh, during uh, every week he would uh, meditate on a different uh, chapter. And the, the chapter that he, uh, he focused on early in the course was called The Refusal of the Call. Now The Refusal of the Call is the chapter in Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he narrates the story of Jonah and the whale where Jonah refuses his call out of fear. The, the fear of actually having to go and speak to the people of Nineveh, 
which he was advised to do by the word of God, is, is what he refused. And the, the men threw him over the uh, uh, side of the uh, ship, and uh, he was swallowed by the great fish or the whale. And then there uh, he eventually remembered what his vocation was, and then he was able to uh, fulfill his, his destiny. So Everson, of course, was the one who really introduced me to American poetry, and I became a, a scholar of, of Herman Melville's great classic, Moby Dick, where in chapter uh, 9, the sermon, <laughs> and Everson often was giving sermons when he was meditating, Melville assumes the uh, the mantle or the, the 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 persona of the prophet or the preacher, and he he preaches to the to the people, uh, the the sailors, uh, and narrates the story of Jonah and the whale. And he says there uh, uh, that whosoever is true to your own inexorable self. Uh, a great, great delight will be experienced. Um, so this this idea of uh, of speaking the truth, as he says, to the face of falsehood, uh, this is what uh, the call often uh, asks of us. Um, it relates to our democracy. It relates to economics. It it relates to all of the vocations that have that, uh, the Bob Dylan, for example, the musician on platform as well, who's giving his poem through song, there's a certain kind of courage that is involved, a heroic spirit that one has to uh, get in touch with. And often this does come during the heroic phase of life, which, as Jung said, uh, lasts until at least the age of 35. So the young scholars are just at that point where they're in the hero myth. They're living out a destiny pattern. And so listening to dreams is, is extremely important, uh, Rob, in, in being able to, to know whether or not you're on a true course, you're, whether your ship is nav being navigated you know, by the North Star, for example, which is, would be in alignment with your destiny pattern. So there's a correlation between these uh, dreams, oftentimes, when we research them at a deep enough level. And in analytic work, I experience that sometimes in my um, uh, psychotherapy uh, work with patients, where there's a correlation between uh, an inner dream image and something that happens on the outside. Uh, in, in the world, uh, such as not knowing really where I was going to start today, and then Rob, you sending me that uh, uh, essay, The Tongs of Jeopardy, which is really a poem that's not published yet by Everson. But it reminded me of where my research uh, uh, in vocational dreams got centered after my time with Everson, because he became a kind of a self-figure. When you project uh, uh, the image, you know, Everson was 44 years my senior. He was like a wise old man figure. He was not just the father, the spiritual father I never had. He was like a spiritual grandfather. He was like the, the old um, uh, shaman figure who 
delivered some kind of message and confirmed for me back then, even at 24, that my calling was to be a Jungian analyst when I didn't really have full belief in myself yet. You know, when we're young, we don't always know uh, where our confidence foundation is, where we stand uh, in relationship to the self. Oh, but through a relationship like that, and uh, it could be to an economist, um, you, sometimes something happens in your uh, career where, where a door opens where you least expected it to open. And, um, and that's a, an indication that you're on the right track. And you know it by the feeling element. You know, William James wrote so much about the varieties of religious experience. Well, being in Everson's presence was like that um, for me and for many of the other students at uh, Santa Cruz. Not everybody got the message uh, from Everson. Uh, there's always uh, resistance. And... Um, he was, in some ways, a, a very uh, unique individual and stood outside of the average person because he, he, first of all, he dressed in a way that was just um, unheard of, really, at a university. And yet Santa Cruz was an experimental place where he could really be himself and uh, uh, express his uh, character, his personality, uh, his individuality. And... Um, I think that's one of the things that uh, uh, we have fears of uh, uh, enacting. You know, you mentioned uh, social psychology, Rob. Uh, well, one of the uh, outstanding uh, leaders uh, of the um, time in Jungian psychology here on the West Coast was a figure named Ira Progoff, and his first book was actually a dissertation. It was called Jung's psychology and its social meaning. And uh, he went to Zurich to talk to Jung about this manuscript, and they ended up throwing the I Ching together, the ancient Chinese oracle, the Book of Changes. And he, when the coins landed, uh, the, the, the oracle gave Progoff a reading that just seemed too profound. It was called Crossing the Great Water, and he had just crossed the Great Water too go to visit Jung, but there, there was this sense about um, synchronicity that really spoke to uh, Progoff at the time, because Jung had just written his essay on synchronicity, and so Progoff then later wrote a book called Jung, Synchronicity, and Human Destiny, and this is one of the subjects that Everson and I talked about uh, at great length, and that uh, is in a chapter in the book, um, uh, William Everson, The Shaman's Call. And that's one that you were uh, referring to, I think, before we started to record, Rob. So I just wanted to make that connection uh, with social science and Progoff, because he was a very important figure. And at the same time that Everson was developing this hypothesis that I later tested at UC Santa Cruz for validity, empirical validity, that there is a vocational archetype in the human psyche and it can be confirmed through a study of dreams, Ira Progoff in his work in uh, Depth Psychology and Modern Man, had developed this idea of dynotypes, as he called them, enacting images. Uh, so images of activity. So they were, they were essentially speaking about uh, an analogous uh, subject. Everson's was a more, uh, you could say, um, religious view, because he came from a Dominican 
background, a Catholic background, and used uh, uh, the kind of language that uh, uh, that Progoff was not using as a social scientist. Um, but um, it's not so much the uh, the language that matters as it is the the the, the, the facts of experience that are being studied, and, and that's these, uh, these portraits uh, of instinct, a uh, uh, vocational instinct, I'd, we could call it, or a destiny instinct. And, um, and it's uh, those images that uh, uh, have a certain kind of numinous uh, feeling associated with them. This is a term that Carl Jung borrowed from uh, the, uh, the classical scholar uh, Rudolf Otto, who wrote a book called uh, The Idea of the Holy, or Das Heilige in German. And there he coined this term numinous. Uh, so when we talk about archetypal experiences, one of the fears that we have in, in approaching the unconscious is the numinosity of uh, the archetypes, that they have an sometimes overwhelming uh, uh, light uh, that can be emitted from them that can, can either be dark or light. You know, it, there's a certain darkness to the shadow, for example, the personal shadow, or the collective archetypal shadow. Uh, and um, uh, one encounters both polarities uh, when one begins to open up to the what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. The other term we were talking about earlier, Rob, was the idea of a psychoid continuum that Jung found later in life extended beyond the collective unconscious, and this includes matter. that. Uh, uh, things can happen uh, in the outside world where one can dream, for example, of a coyote and then go for a hike and suddenly a coyote makes its appearance on the trail uh, or a snake, for example. Uh, and that kind of thing has happened to me. In fact, it happened when I, was, uh, when I graduated from UC Santa Cruz. Um, I had a dream about a king snake. This is a California king snake, a natural predator of the rattlesnake. And that led me to the, uh, make a decision to write my, uh, to study with Everson, uh, to write my own individual major in depth psychology and religion, which was taking a risk uh, in my academic career, but I, I, ha I followed the call. And then uh, when I graduated from uh, John F. Kennedy University with my master's degree in Arenda, I was driving home uh, after the graduation and there around sunset uh, on the uh, road heading up to uh, the house where I was living, uh, I just about ran over a California king snake and uh, scooped it up and took it, took it home and gave it some water to drink and then let it go in the hills. Um, but these kinds of things happen. You have a dream about a particular dream animal or an, a totem animal, an ally, as they're called in shamanism sometimes, and suddenly it makes its appearance uh, in your outer physical life. And how that happens is a mystery. But Jung called those uh, encounters uh, synchronicity. And... Um, 
these are a-causal events. The dream doesn't cause the outer event to happen, but through the constellation of an archetype, uh, there can be a correspondence between the psyche and nature, or psyche and matter. And so Everson really tried to bring this together in Birth of a Poet by dressing like a, a, a Native American uh, shaman, uh, with the beat look, I mean the long flowing black, you know, gray hair with the long gray beard. He was, he was, I think, 69 when I met him and uh, really looked like kind of the prototypical figure of a, a West Coast um, poet prophet, pro, poet shaman, you know, he was really, uh, he carried that mantle as he would call it, kind of very a precursor well. to the beat generation, and uh, yes, he was part of that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting. Uh, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about there. There are things they may be intuitive or conscious, but my understanding from listening to you is that when you come into a classroom and he does meditations, it's almost like asking you to take off your armor. Take, take off your armor. It's not a request, it's not a demand, but it's a softening so that you can be more impressionable without being afraid. And, uh, and I think in some of the vocational stories you tell, it's how you go from, can I do this, to I can do this. It's, you, you have a sense or a, uh, an intuition you're being pulled or you're being drawn in a direction, but something happens that catalyzes it, brings a confidence, and uh, I think uh, I think it's fascinating. In my own life, I always uh, I was a sailor from the, from as a very young child. My parents they duct tape me in a drawer and they'd go sailing, and uh, so I didn't fall out and stuff. But uh, uh, but I did a lot of sailing, and when I started to do economics and finance, and my mother's family had been quite devastated by the Great Depression, so I, th I felt like the stakes are high. It was drawing my attention because of my mother's anxiety about finance. But I used to say, when you're sailing, you can't not play. You know, if the weather gets better, you, first of all, you can't know what's going to happen. There are unknown and unknowable unknowns on the horizon when you leave the shore. But you can't go, like, get afraid and go down in the cabin and tie yourself into a bunk because worse things can happen. you got to continue to manage the boat through lightning, through storms, through big seas, what have you. Uh, so there is a, a sense in which... Uh, I thought economics perhaps pretended too much that things were knowable to keep you in the saddle, whereas sailing taught you that they're not knowable, but you still got to keep playing, and uh, you got to learn how to manage that angst. But uh, but I, I, there were lots of different, uh, which call almost like mystical fascinations for me, the wandering albatross was an enormous catalyst in my life. I was in awe watching them gliding around the sea and so forth for years. 
And at the pinnacle of my favorite voyage I did to South Georgia Island, there was a place called Albatross Island where you can't harm the birds. It's a place where they breed. And we were given a permit to go out there. And we went out, three of us, and uh, I put my hand out and the bird walked up and took the glove off my hand. And then I sat down and it curled up like a puppy and I pet its back. And uh, these are birds with like 11 foot wingspan. And I just was, I was overwhelmed by mother nature. But the words that came into me, it's like a dream. It was like, we'd been there almost 50 days exploring around the island, looking at all the icebergs, visiting where Shackleton's grave was and all these other things. And I heard as I'm sitting with the bird, you can go home now. It was like a feeling of closure or completion. And I don't know why that voice came to me. But, uh, but those experiences, sometimes related to Mother Nature, sometimes related to other people or animals or whatever, are, are very powerful, very, very uh, energetic. At, but I think you're, you're, you know, when we look at Everson, what I found is there are people who are mystical. I had great good fortune at another time in my life working closely with Bill Moyers who had done Power of Myth and all the Joseph Campbell work, and he turned me on to the, you know, all, many, many stories, many books. And, uh, and I think the sense that I get, though, is that there was something about Everson that could feel where the blockages and tensions were between, in essence, what, we need to do and what we without trading are reluctant to do and where those intersect he seemed like he wanted to create this meditation like vocation to create your inner strength to send you on the path that you would ultimately find more satisfying and that that's how he described himself taking on all kinds of resistances and challenges in, in his writing like Birth of the Poet. And uh, I think, it, you know, I've, I've looked, you, I haven't discussed with the audience here today, but you did a book on William James and Carl Jung. You've done a book on spiritual democracy and Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson and Everson the Shaman's Call, and uh, I know you're working on a book on Moby Dick and, and Melville from our conversations. So it does seem like, how would you say, when you got immersed, something propelled you in a direction that was a good choice and you made the most of it. And uh, I, think that's a, I think that's a fascinating lesson. But Everson, as I listen to you, I, I can, about your works and your books, there are many things that motivate you, but there's something magical about his being like that albatross was for me, that bird that unlocked you and sent you on your course. 
And I think that's, I think it's fascinating. Because like you said, I, I've actually, in, you and I have been trying to help uh, Pablo Frasconi and others make a film about Everson. And you're central to it. I've tried to be helpful in, at the periphery. But I've actually met people who were the children of faculty at Santa Cruz who were not students of his, but were terrified of him because of that look, because of that big beard and necklaces and so forth. They, as a, say, a 12 or a 13-year-old, they were like, whoa, what's this? And, and quite anxious about it. Was he controversial when he came on stage in, uh, at Santa Cruz with other faculty, with the administration, or what have you? Or was it just a beautiful time of experimentation at Santa Cruz where uh, it, it just flowed? Oh, I don't think he was uh, controversial. Uh, I think he was well-respected for his art as a poet. He was the poet-in-residence. And I think everybody respected him for his poetry um, and his printing, a fine, fine press printing. He had the Lime Kiln Press uh, up at UC Santa Cruz where he printed uh, fabulous uh, books. Uh, American Bard, the, he set the preface uh, to Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass uh, to, to uh, verse. Uh, he, he saw it was a poem. And uh, it was just a very uh, moving experience to be able to be in the print shop there with the other students and to, to learn from him, to, to watch him. Uh, so his craftsmanship as a poet or as a bookmaker... As a bookmaker, as a, a, a wood carver, he, he, he carved um, um, an American bald eagle, uh, which was uh, the um, first uh, page of uh, American Bard. And um, on the front cover is an androgynous figure uh, with uh, three, three faces, uh, you know, the face looking uh, directly uh, in front of you, and then it, on the sides there was a male and a female figure. So the, he brought together, and this of course represented the androgyny, you could say, of Walt Whitman, that he was bringing together in, in, the, in the book. And these books uh, were very precious, uh, some of them priceless, um, uh, I was just down at um, Robinson Jeffers' uh, tour house. Robinson Jeffers was Everson's uh, master, uh, his and mentor. And a very famous poet, yes. Yeah, California poet um, in Carmel, uh, by the sea. And, and Everson's book, uh, Granite and Cypress, actually has real uh, granite and cypress in the book itself. So, And, and the book, I think... It's worth thousands. I mean, it's a very, these are collector's items. Um, and um, so he was highly, highly regarded for his art. Uh, he was seen as a, an artist, a poet, a fine press printer. 
and a, 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 a teacher. Um, he didn't have a professorship. He, he, as he told me, he parachuted into the university. He dropped out of the University of Fresno, or Fresno State University, after he found a book by Robinson Jeffers and pulled it off the shelf. And he, he left uh, school and became a nature poet of the San Joaquin Valley. And um, at Santa Cruz, he was, um, I would say, one of the most popular teachers. His classes were so large, he had 400 students in a class. And the literature department at Kresge College had to limit the class to 100 students by the time I took the class. Um, yeah, he had a big following. He, he, it was a very popular, very popular class. There may have been some envy amongst some of the professors there that uh, the students were so drawn to him. But getting back to the fear of some of the students who re gave reports that you uh, heard stories uh, about Rob, there was something about the, him. These were not students. These were children of faculty who just oh, children interacted of faculty. with him. Yeah. They, they were I, a bit, I can a bit see younger than child, college age, yeah. but they saw him I, as kind I, I of frighteningly bizarre. He might be frightening, frightened by his his uh, um, unusual um, look, and when when he looked at you, sometimes he could he had a piercing kind of a a, a glance that he he was not just looking at you or into your eyes; he was looking into your soul, and that could be terrifying itself to really be seen by somebody at that depth. You you mentioned his feeling, Rob. That was the other thing. He could feel into the depths of a person's soul uh, and know something about them through his intuition because he was an intuitive feeling type. And so, yeah, he, he had um, very unusual characteristics that I, I, I can see could be frightening at first and let, until you got to know him and then he was just gentle uh, kind of like the albatross that curled itself up in your uh, next to you, uh, that there was that mother nature. Uh, uh, you felt uh, comforted by him. He had a very feminine side, very developed anima, as Jung would call uh, his feminine side. His the the the. He really embodied uh, a kind of Sophia wisdom, you know, the, the wisdom of the, of the divine feminine. He really had that side to him and was very nurturing. He had a very strong fathering instinct. He, he fathered his, uh, his son, his adoptive son, uh, Jude Everson, after he left the order and was a wonderful father. And um, so that instinct was very strong. So I think if a child got close to him and got to know him, they would just, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes we can be afraid of a, of a, do, you know, a, a dog, for example, when we're a child, and then get to know the dog, and, and then suddenly it just becomes so loving. And that was the thing about Everson. He had this tremendous capacity for love and such an awareness of his shadow, of his dark side, that 
I, I almost, I can't remember seeing him angry. Uh, some, I don't know how he, where he, how he contained it, but he had a real awareness of his own potential for violence. You saw it in the Tongs of Jeopardy, Rob, where you know he said he felt like he was closer to Oswald than he, he w was to a Kennedy because Kennedy was such an ideal political figure that, but he was very aware of his shadow that he, that any of us could become an Oswald. Now this is a very Jungian idea. It's, it's, it's a horrifying thought really, uh, but he talks about this in his meditations in the power of the negative, how the, the shadow has the potential to cap capture the archetype of our vocation and lead us into the wrong uh, path. Uh, and this could be um, in any calling that anyone has a potential to act out the shadow and become a shadow-dominated personality if one doesn't do one's own individual work, one's own inner work. And that's why dreams are so important because there you see the villain. There you see, you know, the murderer. You see uh, the attacking animal. You see, the more you look at your dreams, the more you'll see the violence of the unconscious. And, um, you know, we're going through a time right now in the nation where the national psyche is very stirred up. Uh, there, there's a lot of political unrest. And Everson's portraying the uh, the conflict as uh, the conflict between Cain and Abel, the the two hostile brothers, in the um, the, the the drama of the American uh, psyche around the death of President Lincoln, um, was very interesting from the point of view of what Jung, Carl Jung has written about the hostile brother motif, that we see this in the the feuding between the Republican and the Democratic parties, that there's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of uh, unconscious uh, envy and hatred and a lot of dark energies are flowing through the national psyche right now. And this is what M Herman Melville uh, explored so magnificently in our great American novel in Moby Dick between Ahab and, and Ishmael and his wife, uh, uh, Queequeg, the Polynesian harpooner, who he sleeps with in the Spouter Inn. In chapter 10, a bosom friend. He brought this back from the Polynesian Islands from his sailing days as a sailor. Uh, and so he brought back already the, the archetype, you could say, for same-sex marriage is right there in our great American novel in chapter 10 of Moby Dick, that he foresaw this. You see, the, the great shaman poet like that, um, uh, like Melville was, uh, uh, and like Whitman was, and like Emily Dickinson were, uh, they have the ability to see things a hundred years in advance because of their intuitive, as you mentioned, visionary uh, consciousness. Um, well, you, you did a, um, a discussion about shamanism with Everson for a San Francisco Jungian journal that I once read, and he talked about that the shamanism to him was like trance-like, being able to get into a trance so that you can open up to what's really happening and shake off the false consciousness. And the uh, 
how would I say, the um, story that we shared before this today with the, about the tongs of jeopardy and about uh, the murder of JFK and all the dilemmas, he says, this is this man who you just described moments ago as soft and gentle and has a feminine side, etc. And then he says, for man thinks logically, he feels he can understand only what he can reduce to reason in its terms. But God acts symbolically, confounding man's logic. He thrusts upon him the most profound and disturbing significations and holds them there until the depth of implication in it is ineradicably registered. Then the inner reality concealed in the heart of things, which human logic never perceives, shakes the mind out of a dream of superficial well-being, a dream that was actually leading to disaster. I, when I read that, I just thought, that's a false consciousness about unregulated financial markets. And we have seen, whether it's financial governing officials or United States legislature, the surveys of Gallup, Richard Edelman, and others about expertise and governance have collapsed since the great financial crisis. But if you go back to a man like Frank Knight, who was a person who wrote about radical uncertainty, the unknowing, you see that there were, in that case, famous economists who were, what you might call, put in storage, but who, and John Maynard Keynes for that matter, he wrote his dissertation on uh, Treatise on Probability, and it was about the unknown and unknowable unknowns of the future. So this, I guess what I find so interesting about Everson is he maintains a softness and a constructiveness and a vehemence at the same time about how we can get off course. There's a, a, a kind of anchored conviction within him at the same time that he isn't like a charismatic promising you false certainties so that you feel comfortable until such time that he's unmasked of having been telling untruthful false certainties. And uh, so I, I really find this, this dynamic that you're bringing forth and uh, interesting. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was Robertson Jeffers. The book that I bought from Lime Kiln Press was called Tragedy Has Obligations. And there is the poem of that name. And it made me think that Robertson Jeffers is his kind of, his North Star in poetry. He was so vehement and so intense. I found the language that he brought to bear uh, quite fierce. And uh, so, so there's this combination of self-confidence that's grounded, but caring about others, and then um, managing, like you said, through the meditations and courses in Birth of a Poet, nurturing other people. And, and how he put all those together in the same package is really brilliant. It's, it's very 
complicated and subtle. But, uh, but take, uh, for instance, tragedy has obligations, the first passage. If I'd thrown a little more boldly in the flood of fortune, you'd have had England. Or in the slackening, less boldly, you'd have not sunk your right hand in Russia. These are two ghosts. They stand by the bed and make a man tear his flesh. The rest is fatal. Each day a new disaster. At last, Fivictus. It means Weiden Gishten. This is the essence of tragedy. To have meant well and made woe and watch fate all stone approach. The, there is a vehemence in that poem and a criticism of false certainties at the same time. It's almost like you've got to be vehemently comfortable with not knowing or not being able to get closure on knowing. But uh, it's, it's, it's just a very delicate, and, but it's at odds with performing for the peer-reviewed journals or appearing at the big policy meetings and trying not to be controversial when the stakes, for instance, of not funding climate change in the global south can affect us all. And the critiques of money and politics, the standing and watching leaders in both parties becoming centimillionaires as professional legislators. I mean, there, there's a lot going on here that is very unwholesome and is not uh, what you might call brought onto center stage by any of the paradigms in social science. Well, when we look at the news, uh, what's not on central stage is, I think, and until there's a disaster, and then it is on central, central stage, but um, what's not being put on central stage is the, the uncertainty, as you're saying, and the unknowability about what's lurking around the corner with regards to climate change. And speaking of Robinson Jeffers, uh, he wrote, this is in the 1940s now, Rob, he wrote, the polar ice caps are melting. Soon London and uh, L.A., Los Angeles, will be underwater. But then he goes to talk about the tower that he built out of these stones that he, he dredged up from Point Carmel and made into a structure that he called Hawk Tower. And in that poem, he says that uh, in an, the Hawk Tower will, will, will become geological, fossil, permanent. Uh, the water will cover the tower, but it will remain, and the little fish will swim by. And now he's foreseeing all this um, 80 years ago. This is, this is the, the, the way in which a shaman poet like that can, can foresee things, foresee developments. The, the polar ice caps are melting. Um, he wrote a poem called Cassandra because he felt like he was a Cassandra, that people weren't listening. You're good. I, I'm, I'm absolutely stunned right now 
because as we were talking, I got an alert from Maria Popova and the headline that came up, this came up onto the screen of my computer. The underratedly wonderful Robertson Jeffers on moral beauty and the interconnectedness of the universe and the key to peace of mind. <laughs> and it's wow. a story which I, I'll post with this podcast and I'll send it to you about him, it, it, just as you were talking about him. And it, it was just stunning. It's a short little piece. And uh, Jeffers, Jeffers writes... I'm just excerpting quickly. It is sort of a tradition in this country not to talk about religion for fear of offending. I'm still a little subject to the tradition and rather dislike stating my attitudes, except in the course of a poem. However, they are simple. I believe the universe is one being and all its parts are different expressions of the same energy and they're all in communication with each other, influencing each other and therefore parts of one organic whole. This is physics, I believe, as well as religion. So, uh, anyway, we got a message go. from the late Robinson Jeffers. Well, and there you go, physics as well as religion, and you see what Jung described as synchronicity happening yes. right on the screen there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where she just, the hit popped That's, up right at that moment. Wow, wow. <laughs> so there you are. Um, that's that's what happens when uh, things get, get constellated around uh, ideas. Uh, Archetypes are uh, uh, ideas as well as images. And so we start talking and things begin to happen sometimes. This is when we touch into that psychoid depth uh, where matter gets affected. It's even affecting our computer screens as, <laughs> as we're talking. I think this kind of creativity, I, I, did, I made a note of a quote that Kennedy made about Robert Frost, about the role of the artist, of the poet, of the mystic, etc. But Kennedy was just talking about Robert Frost, and he says, strength takes many forms, and the most obvious forms are not always the most significant. The men who create power make an indispensable contribution to the nation's greatness. But the men who question power make a contribution just as indispensable, especially when that questioning is disinterested, for they determine whether we use power or power uses us. And uh, I thought, as a, as a tribute, he was essentially saying, well, I'll go on, Robert Frost coupled poetry and power, for he saw poetry as a means of saving power from itself. When power leads men towards arrogance, poetry reminds him of his limitations. When power narrows the man's the excuse me, when power narrows the areas of a man's concerns, poetry reminds him of the richness and diversity of his existence. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. For art establishes the basic human truth, which must serve as a touchstone of our judgment. The artist, however, faithful to his personal vision of reality, becomes the last champion of the individual mind and sensibility against an intrusive society in an officious state. In pursuing his perceptions of reality, he must often sail against the currents of his time. This is not a popular role. If sometimes great artists have been most critical of society, it's because their sensitivity and concerns for justice, which must motivate any true artist, make them aware of our nation falling short of its highest potential. 
I see little more importance to the future of our country and our civilization than to fully recognize the place of the artist. That's John Beautiful. F. Kennedy talking from the White House. That's John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Wow. Uh, he's mm. talking upon the death of Robert Frost, went to uh, University of Massachusetts up in Amherst, and made a speech because Frost had come to his inauguration and created poetry and read some poetry, and so he went back up in honor of his life. But I think uh, it, this, what I like about the poetry and the art is it's not a weapon being used to make you afraid. It's a method of illumination. And that's what I learned from Everson is that he's trying to bring us all to a higher level of awareness and less afraid and therefore less clinging to false consciousness out of fear for ourselves or our own ratings of approval or disapproval by our peer groups. And I think at a time like this, when the fears are so high, starting from the framework like you've built in your professional life and working with these pathways to challenge and illumination at times when things have been off course is the only is the only way forward and uh, i don't i don't think resignation is an option constructive evolution as you said earlier finding the next north star who right now, I mean, we've had people like Joseph Henderson and Donald Sandler and others. Is there, are there people now at the vanguard of the discipline along with yourself that you would mention to our viewers today and our listeners? Oh, definitely. Um, I, I want to mention Murray Stein. Uh, He's a Zurich analyst now. He lives in Zurich. He's from Chicago, uh, but uh, migrated to Switzerland now, lives uh, in Zurich. He is the uh, founder and the president of uh, uh, ISAP, the International Society for Analytical Psychology. He founded his own institute uh, in, in um, Zurich. And um, I've read uh, pretty much uh, most of his books, I would say. Um, he's writing his collected works now. Uh, and I've reviewed uh, several of his books for the San Francisco Young Institute Library Journal. And he's been a great um, inspiration for me and um, uh, really is a magnificent writer and thinker. And one of the leading lights in uh, our field of uh, Jungian or analytical psychology. Um, so I'll, I'll mention him, uh, okay. Rob. Well, I'll audience. put a man who's been absolutely vital life coach for me in making transitions, who also lives like you in Northern California, John O'Neill. John has written a number of books, but uh, the one that caught my attention before I met him in person is called The Paradox of Success. 
and uh, there, he was a Jungian psychologist trained by Joseph Henderson, and uh, it's, how would I say, every time I, I get all bottled up, he unlocks me. <laughs> He's an artist. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, but uh, I think uh, he's got a book called The Whole Enchilada uh, about all of <laughs> the different challenges in his patients. And I get criticized constructively in those in those chapters. But uh, but I think John's a very loving soul and has done a tremendous amount for many, many people. And uh, I think, uh, how do I say, bringing this from just personal counseling to, I, I almost feel like the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve and the Internal Revenue Service, then the Department of Energy and the Securities and Exchange Commission all should have Jungian advanced degrees so that we can see what we're not seeing constructively. And uh, because this, uh, how do I say, this realm in which you approach the challenge is a very different mindset than what we were trained in engineering or economics or other forms of social science. Tell me before we uh, sign off, what are you what are you working on right now? What's the, what's the next thing this audience can expect to see when they sign on for? book parties or, or promotions in the, in the coming <laughs> well, months, or are you making movies? Uh, what, 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 what's well, on deck right now? No, no, no movies. Uh, um, you know, I, I'm going to live my life, like you said, in the unknown, in the unexpected uh, right now, and just see what uh, emerges. I'm working on a couple of uh, manuscripts, a few. <laughs> The Melville manuscript is still unpublished, and I'm working on a, a book project uh, that's been uh, ongoing for over 40 years that Everson supervised at UC Santa Cruz. That was my senior thesis on Meister Eckhart and Carl Jung. I'm, I'm uh, halfway through that uh, book project, and also I have a, a book on vocational dreams that comes from my research uh, at John F. Kennedy University. So. And then, uh, as well as uh, the, uh, the chapters that I've been writing uh, subsequent to that time um, in courses that I've taught at the Jung Institute and, and elsewhere. Um, so I've got several things going. I've got a lot of unpublished poetry. But I like to work in the garden, get my hands in the, uh, in the dirt, and uh, uh, watch the flowers grow, and uh, welcome the hummingbirds and the flowers, and bees and uh, butterflies uh, to try to help them uh, survive uh, the, uh, the current uh, time that we're going through. And uh, I, I just, uh, I, I'm so ad admiring, Rob, of uh, how much uh, knowledge you've uh, assimilated since I've known you uh, in a relatively uh, short, I could say, period of time. Uh, how much uh, you've read in, in Jungian psychology is, is really uh, uh, remarkable. And uh, I, I wish more economists uh, would, would follow in your footsteps and uh, get
get on the shaman you know boat uh, with you and uh, take a trip up north to uh, find your albatross and uh, not not from Coolridge's albatross around his neck but the one that curls up next to you and and provides that kind of nurturance and play. I, I liked what you said about the play instinct. You know? Schiller in his uh, aesthetic education, Letters on the Education of Man, talked about the importance of the play instinct and I get that sense about you that you really bring a lot of play into your work and maybe that comes from your music too. Uh, so uh, you just keep uh, Keep doing what you're doing, and uh, I, I, I love I love your work, and and uh, I think the institute is uh, is is uh, the way of the future in, in economics. Well, I so, hope to uh, validate what you project. I know who knows what the future is, but uh, <laughs> I hope I can stand there in five years, and you'll say that was well done, and we'll keep trying. But the, uh, Par the energy that you bring, you're, you, I'm sorry, go ahead. Just the paradox of success. I just wanted to, you know, reiterate the title of your friend's book there, uh, that there is a paradox there. Yeah, well, John uh, is very, uh, how do I say, deeply Jungian, and uh, he had been an executive at AT&T and other things in his own life, and uh, I think he's seen the silver linings and the dark side of many things. And uh, he, he imparts a kind of wisdom to those who he consults with. But the, um, you know, and I know your spouse is involved in the Jungian world of arts. And that, that's, as you mentioned, music. That's a, when I met her, she's uh, got a lot to offer as well. So you, how do they say, you got a team with two horses pulling the buggy. That's great. Yes, I, I'm. I couldn't do it without her, and uh, she's uh, Lori Goldrich. Uh, my wife is a Jungian analyst at uh, the San Francisco Jung Institute, who's teaching active imagination and dream work. And and uh, yeah, we we loved having you at our home, Rob, and uh, hearing about uh, your stories, your wonderful stories about your trips north. And yeah, um, well, so thanks for so. mentioning Lori. It's uh, I've been lucky, so uh, I've got to knock on wood, keep it going. But uh, anyway, thank you for being with me today and uh, exploring. By the way, what inspired us we did not discuss with the audience, but what inspired us to get together today and now was that it's 29 years to the day yesterday when William Everson died, and while we've been in lots of dialogue and you've been a shepherd in teaching me how to get down the tracks and uh, we've enjoyed things like talking about the movie The Whale as you're working on Melville. Uh, I did want to underscore that the, the thing that brought us to the table today is to honor the life of William Everson who passed away 29 years ago yesterday. Yeah, thank you Rob for for uh remembering remembering that yeah everson's buried at the uh, benicia cemetery the dominican cemetery in benicia where i've been uh, numerous times to uh, visit his grave and i was honored to have been one of the pallbearers at his uh at his funeral yeah. well how would you say he may have passed but his echoes 
are going to create the birth of many more poets. I'm confident of that, particularly with you carrying yes. the ball. Well, and uh, many other uh, vocations uh, in addition to the poet. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for uh, having me on. My pleasure. Uh, your show, Rob. This will be the first uh, of, I'm sure, be several chapters and. I know my young scholars have been encouraging me to uh, perhaps make a course with you on these uh, vital issues because we are working with the Young Scholars Initiative very seriously to create the leaders of the future. And the leaders of the future who have a deeper sense of the nature of the challenge and can learn from people like you and the work of Everson and Robinson Jeffers and John O'Neill will be better equipped to serve society. Thanks again. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing